Amen. It was back in 2018 when a Catholic named Alex Jones, and not to be confused with the other Alex Jones, this guy named Alex Jones, he launched the Hallow app. And ever, and ever since then, you know, the Hallow app uh, has actually employed uh, many famous Catholics to promote this app, uh, like Liam Neeson. Mark Wahlberg, even Jonathan Rumi, who plays Jesus on The Chosen. These Catholics have been peddling this prayer app, which promises to teach us how to pray. But rather than focusing in on the model prayer that Jesus presented to his disciples, the Hallow app actually presents people with prayers, many of which are based on the repetitive mantras that are found within Eastern meditation, which is supposed to bring the practitioner into an altered state of consciousness. And so I would just encourage you to realize that uh, repetitive mantras are nothing more than vain repetitions, even when spiritual names like Jesus are incorporated into the chant. But listen, it's in this altered state of consciousness Uh, that comes on through Eastern meditation, that people are more susceptible to demonic oppression and possible possession. And not only does the Hallow app teach people how to engage in these sorts of, uh, you know, Eastern-style prayers of repetitive, you know, vain repetitions and whatnot, but the Hallow app also encourages people to pray with the saints who are already in heaven. The, The encouragement is to seek the saints through prayer so that they might be able to help us. And so, you know, if you lose your keys, then there's the patron saint of lost keys. And if you've lost your mind, then there's the patron saint of people who are crazy and, and all these sorts of things, right? And so the Hallow app, you know, it, it encourages prayers, you know, to God by the help of the saints, so to speak. And yet uh, this instruction is given despite the fact that there's nothing in the Bible about this. There's nothing in the Bible about praying to saints who are already in heaven. Furthermore, the Hallow app also encourages people to pray to Mary. And while they go out of their way to explain that they aren't actually praying to Mary, but through Mary, I must insist that the app actually instructs people to pray the rosary, which includes the, the, the Salve Regina, which begins in this way, Hail, Holy Queen, Mother of Mercy, our life, our sweetness, and our hope. Wait, what? Our life? Mary is our life? I thought Jesus is our life. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by him. Jesus is our hope. And yet, here within this prayer, Mary is considered to be our life and our hope. With that, I want to continue to consider the content of this prayer. And and this prayer is actually presented to those who download the Hallow app. And listen, this repetitive prayer, which is presented to Mary through you know, the, 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 the rosary, it's typically offered up in this way, and I quote it, Hail, Holy Queen, Mother of Mercy, our life, our sweetness, and our hope. To you we cry, poor banished children of Eve. To you we send up our sighs, mourning and weeping in this valley of tears. 
Turn then, most gracious advocate, your eyes of mercy toward us, and after this, our exile. Show unto us the blessed fruit of your womb, Jesus, O clement, O loving, O sweet Virgin Mary. Without debate, this prayer is clearly dedicated and directed to Mary and to Mary alone. And while there is a mention of Jesus, but you know, the prayer is offered to Mary, Hail, Holy Queen, Mother of Mercy. And, the, and listen, in the midst of this prayer, we find Mary being referred to as the gracious advocate. Now, the Bible assures us that Jesus is the only advocate that we need. And yet this prayer exalts Mary to the level of most gracious advocate. Wow, most. Consider that word for a moment. Most gracious advocate. Does that mean that Mary's more gracious than Jesus Christ and more of an advocate than Jesus Christ? Certainly seems to suggest this. This prayer also identifies Mary as the ever-virgin mother of Jesus. And in light of these claims... I want to spend our time tonight addressing the question, should we be praying to Mary, as the Hallow app suggests? Well, as we set out to answer this question, I want to preface this study by assuring you that it's not my intention to bash the sincerely held beliefs of those who attend the Catholic Church. I'm not up here to pick on Catholics, and I'm certainly making no assumptions about what each individual Catholic actually believes. I have no clue. You know, I've, I've talked to lots of Catholics uh, throughout my life, and, you know, I find there to be a variation of beliefs with each Catholic I talk to. So I'm not making any assumptions about, you know, whether, you know, or not every Catholic actually prays this prayer or, or believes in this prayer. What I do know, though, is what the leaders of the Roman Catholic Church teach. And, you know, much like I would encourage you to you know, believe what your pastor teaches. You know, I think that Roman Catholics who are attending the Catholic Church ought to believe what their leaders are teaching. Why would you attend a church like the Roman Catholic Church if you don't really believe in, in what's being taught there? With that, we need to uh, consider several Catholic dogmas surrounding Mary which seem to support the practice of praying to Mary. And with that being the case, I want to spend our time this evening examining, examining three specific dogmas surrounding Mary. Uh, these dogmas are taught by the leaders of the, of the Catholic Church. Uh, and, and as we consider these dogmas, you know, we're going to consider the question, should we pray to Mary? And so here in our time tonight, we're going to first examine the dogma of Mary's immaculate conception. And as we do, we're going to ask, was Mary sinless? If so, then maybe we ought to pray to her. We're also going to examine the dogma of Mary's perpetual virginity. And as we do, we're going to ask, did Mary remain a virgin from conception to ascension? If so, then maybe we ought to be praying to her. Finally, we'll examine the doctrine of the Theotokos by asking the question, is Mary really the mother of God or the Theotokos? And if so then maybe we ought to be praying to her. Well, with this as the outline, if you would, let's begin by opening our Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Here we find Mary. She's rejoicing over the revelation that she was, in fact, carrying 
the Son of God within her womb. And as you're making your way to the first chapter of Luke, I just want to take a moment to define the details of this dogma, which is known as the Immaculate Conception. You see, if you didn't grow up in the Catholic Church, then you might think that the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception is about Jesus. And in some ways it kind of is, but it's really more directly relating to Mary. According to the doctrines of the Catholic Church, Mary was allegedly conceived without the stain of original sin. And that's what they talk about when they refer to the Immaculate Conception, that Mary was the one who was immaculately conceived. To prove my point, let's consider the words of Pope Pius IX, who once insisted, and I quote him here, the most blessed Virgin Mary in the first instance of her conception by a singular grace and privilege granted by Almighty God in view of the merits of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the human race, was preserved free from all stain of original sin. What he's saying here is that Mary was conceived in this immaculate state and apart from the stain of sin. And if this is true, then what this means is that you know, uh, you know, Mary being conceived uh, within the womb of her mother, well, di- didn't her mom need to be free from the stain of sin? And then didn't her mom and her mom and so on and so forth? Based on this belief, listen, Catholic leaders insist that Mary was filled with divine grace at the moment of conception so that her womb could then be used to carry the baby Jesus who would be free from the stain of sin. Well, why wasn't this grace just imparted to Jesus within the womb of Mary? Well, they, 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 need, to, uh, you know, they, they need to make Mary immaculately conceived so that Jesus could then be conceived in a sinless womb. But now before we embrace this debatable doctrine, we should take a moment to consider Mary's personal point of view on this. And and so with this as the focus, if you would, let's look again here at Luke chapter 1. We'll begin reading at verse 46. Here Mary declares, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth, all generations will call me blessed. Now here in these verses, we find the opening stanza of the song that Mary sang after her relative Elizabeth announced the spiritual blessings of the Lord upon Mary. And he, you know, after hearing the words of these blessings, you know, Mary breaks out in this spontaneous song as she worships the one who chose her to be the one who would bring forth the promised Messiah from her womb. But now as we consider the content of these lyrics, we must not fail to notice that Mary actually confesses that she was a sinner just like anybody else. With this in mind, look with me again there at verse 48. There again Mary declares, For he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. I should point out that the word lowly that, that Mary uses here in this song The word lowly comes from a Greek word which was used metaphorically to speak of a person's spiritual abasement. And according to Thayer's lexicon, this word was used to describe those who were able to perceive their own moral littleness or even their guilt. And from this, Mary seems to be suggesting that she was, to some degree, guilty of sin, just like all of us. And it's probably for this reason that she refers to her child as her savior. As a matter of fact, notice again 
It's there in verse 46. Mary declares, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. I want to I stop right there. I want to consider what Mary's saying here because before Mary recognizes God as her Savior, she, she would have first realized the need for salvation. Why would you call God your Savior if there's no need for salvation? And yet she recognizes God as her Savior, which means that she also recognizes the need for salvation. Mary didn't see herself as sinless. She saw herself as in a state of of lowliness or moral littleness or guilt of sin, which is why she recognizes that her Savior is coming uh, through her own womb. She was a virgin girl who was admittedly guilty of moral failures and therefore in need of a Savior, just like we're all in need of our Savior Jesus. And with that being the case, the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception, which would lead us to think that Mary was born free from the stain of Eve's sin, well, this is nothing more than a doctrinal deception which finds no, no, no basis, no root in the Bible. When it comes to the question... Was Mary conceived apart from the stain of original sin? The answer is a resounding no. Mary herself didn't even believe that. Now this brings us to the second Marian doctrine, which leads us to ask, well, what about the dogma of Mary's perpetual virginity? With this question in mind, if you would, let's turn in our Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. I'd like you to turn to Matthew chapter 13. Here we find a group of men, they're questioning the, the identity of Jesus Christ. And as you're making your way there to Matthew chapter 13, I just want to point out that the Roman Catholic dogma of Mary's perpetual virginity, it's not only based on the belief that Mary was a virgin before she became pregnant with the supernatural Son of God, but the Catholic Church also teaches that she remained in this state of perpetual virginity until the day she entered heaven. For example, the Roman Catholic Catechism tells us this, and I quote it, The deepening of faith in the virginal motherhood led the church to confess Mary's real and perpetual virginity even in the act of giving birth to the Son of God made man. The Catechism goes on to tell us that Christ's birth, and I quote here, did not diminish his mother's virginal integrity, but sanctified it. In other words, they believe that Mary remained perpetually in a state of virginity all the way to her ascension. In light of this belief, we can then understand why the Catholics began to refer to Mary as the ever-virgin mother of God. As a matter of fact, the expression ever-virgin was taken up by the Second Council of Constantinople back in 553 AD. And and then later on in 1996, Pope John Paul II reconfirmed this Roman Catholic dogma by assuring his audience that, and, and I quote him here, the church traditionally presents Mary as virgin before, during, and after giving birth, affirming by indicating these three moments that she never ceased to be a virgin. Now listen, It's true that this is the official position of the Roman Catholic Church, and yet it still remains a question mark. Is this a biblical position? We know it's the position of the Catholic Church, but is it biblical? 
And with this question in mind, if you would look with me here at Matthew chapter 13, I want to direct your attention beginning at verse 53. Here Matthew tells us that it came to pass when Jesus had finished these parables that he departed from there. When he had come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And his brothers, James, Josie, Simon, and Judas, and his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? Here in these verses, we find this group of people. They're astonished by the teachings of Jesus. And as they attempted to make sense of, of this you know, blossoming teaching ministry of our Savior, they began to ask, well, isn't this, isn't this Jesus? Isn't this the kid that grew up right here in this region? Isn't this the son of Joseph? Isn't this the son of Mary? Not only that, but they also began to question, hey, don't, isn't this the brother of these other boys, you know, James, Josie, Simon, and Judas? Isn't this the brother of, the sis, of his sisters over here? Now, as, as we consider these questions, you know, listen, if it's true that Jesus had brothers and sisters, well, then it only stands to reason that the dogma of Mary's perpetual virginity is nothing more than a false doctrine which is cooked up by confused Catholics because in order for Jesus to have brothers and sisters... Well, we won't get into the nitty-gritty of it, you know, but clearly Mary did not remain a virgin. Now, in order to be fair to the leaders of the Catholic Church, it'll help you to know that Catholic apologists do have an argument in defense of their own dogma. According to the Roman Catholic Catechism, these brothers and sisters of Jesus were actually his cousins. They were just his cousins. Pope John Paul II put it like this, and I quote, It should be recalled that no specific term exists in Hebrew and Aramaic to express the word cousin, and that the terms brother and sister therefore included several degrees of relationship. Now, as we consider this argument, uh, we should take another look at the text to see if the context doesn't provide us with, with uh, an ability to you know, come to a conclusion about whether brother and sister is correct or whether it should be you know, translated cousins. You would look with me again here at Matthew chapter 13. I want to focus your attention at verse 55. Here, a man from the crowd asks, Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So as we consider this context, and as we consider the relational progression that's found in this man's question, it seems to me that the context has correctly... Uh, you know, uh, cause the translators to use the term brothers and sisters instead of cousins. The reason I say this is because there's no mention of our Savior's aunts and uncles. You know, in order for Jesus to have all these cousins, there would need to be aunts and uncles also. And yet within the question, there's nothing about, hey, isn't this the son of Mary and Joseph? And, and, and who then has aunts and uncles, oh, and also all these cousins. And Well, no, we don't find any mention of Jesus' aunts and uncles. But rather, hey, isn't this the son of Mary and Joseph and the brothers and sisters? Clearly, this is you know, a question about the immediate family of Jesus. 
and not his extended family. That being the case, it just doesn't make any sense to me to accept the Pope's position uh, in arguing for the translation to be cousins. Furthermore, I would also remind you that there's no verse in the Bible that presents us with a positive description of Mary's perpetual virginity. Listen, if there was you know, some sort of clear teaching in the Bible about Mary's perpetual virginity, I'd have no problem teaching that. I would take no issue with it. I believe in the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, I would have no issue teaching the perpetual virginity of, Jesus, uh, or of Mary as well. You know, if, if, if I'm ready to sign off on the, the, the virgin birth of Jesus, that Mary was a virgin when she gave birth to the Lord Jesus Christ, if I'm ready to sign off on that, then I'm ready to sign off on the perpetual virginity of Mary as well, if the Bible actually presents it. See, I don't know better than God. Neither do you. And, and what the Bible says, we ought to embrace and teach. But just because the Roman Catholics come along after the fact and, and want to insert this dogma after the Bible has been written and canonized and there's nothing about the virgin or the perpetual virginity of Mary, uh, there's no reason for us to believe it. There's no reason for us to believe it because it's not in the Bible and I'm not going to take the Pope's word for it. When it comes to the question of Mary's sinlessness, the answer is no, she was not immaculately conceived. She was born with a sin nature, just like all the rest of us. There's nothing in the Bible about the immaculate conception of Mary. And at the same time, there's nothing in the Bible about the perpetual virginity of Mary. They've created a different Mary altogether. Finally, I want to examine the doctrine of the Theotokos and, and, and just to be clear, you know, Theotokos speaks of, the, of, of Mary being the mother of God. And so we have to ask, is Mary the mother of God? Well, with this question in mind, let's turn in our Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, where we find Paul presenting us with the unique dual nature of Jesus Christ. And as you're making your way there to the first chapter of Colossians, I should just point out that the word Theotokos, like I said, it literally means the one who gives birth to the one who is God. That's what Theotokos means, the one who gives birth to the one who is God. And according to the leaders of the Roman Catholic Church, Mary is in fact the one who gave birth to the one who is God. And as we begin to consider this position, I don't mean to suggest that the leaders of the Roman Catholic Church are attempting to argue that Mary is the creator of the creator. However, the use of this terminology is confusing and extremely problematic. And it's led many Catholics to think that you know, Mary is co-redeemer alongside of Jesus. And, and, and many Catholics pray to Mary in this context, looking to Mary as the one who the Father pours out his grace into the hands of Mary, and then Mary pours it out into the hands of Jesus, and then into the church and these sorts of things. And it's sad to say that uh, you know, more and more Catholics are beginning to believe in the co-redemptrix aspects uh, of Mary because, well, she's the mother of God. She's the Theotokos. And part of this problem arises in the mind of the person who fails to properly define the distinction then between the child of Mary and the son of God. That, that's the distinction that the prophet Isaiah presents. Is that unto us... Uh, Son is born unto us a, a child, or unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. 
And this helps us to see that there are two distinct natures within the one Savior, Jesus. Jesus has his human nature, and then he also has his divine nature. Just to be clear, I'm not saying that Jesus is two persons in one person. That would be completely illogical. He's not two persons in one person, but rather this one person, Jesus, has two natures. And while these two natures make up the one person who is Jesus, it's also important for us to understand that Mary is the mother of Jesus' human nature, not his divine nature. Within this human nature, God the Father placed the divine nature of his only begotten Son, the Holy Spirit being the one delivering the Logos into the womb of the Virgin Mary, creating the second Adam right there in her womb. And with all this in mind, I want to consider Paul's attempt to explain this very difficult doctrine. So look with me here at Colossians chapter 1. We'll begin reading at verse 15, because here Paul tells us, and he's speaking of Jesus here, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn, or in other words, that could also be rendered preeminent, the preeminent over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn, or again, preeminent from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Here in these verses we find Paul. He's helping us to understand that Jesus has two distinct natures. There's his divine nature, which is infinite and invisible, God of very gods, who's also the creator of all things, including Mary. That's right, the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ is the creator of Mary. At the same time, Paul also refers to the finite image which revealed the infinite nature of the only begotten Son of God. Paul also reveals that this finite image was the firstborn from the dead, and, and, and this, after his blood, was shed upon the cross. In this way, Paul here is walking this theological tightrope by presenting the hypostatic union of our Savior Jesus Christ. That's, that's the theological term we use when we talk about the, the dual natures or the two natures. This is the hypostatic union of Christ, which speaks of the way that Jesus is both the Son of God as well as the child of Mary. Now, you might be wondering, what's the big deal? Why do we need to split these theological hairs here and And in order to help you to understand the importance of this distinction, I'd like you to allow me to point out a a few of the issues that arise as we attempt to grasp the two natures of Jesus Christ. First of all, we should ask, if Jesus is God the Son, then how is it 
that he didn't know the time of his own second coming. When he was asked about the, you know, the time of his coming, he, he didn't know. Think about that for a second. Listen, if, if we fail to acknowledge the distinction between the two natures of Jesus Christ, then we end up with a God who doesn't know his own future. And yet when we remember that there's the human nature of Jesus Christ and that the deity of Jesus didn't come to animate a human, but rather to experience life as a human, well, then he only knew whatever God the Father revealed to him because his deity was to some degree blindfolded by his humanity. And so, you know, the inability of knowing when the time of his second coming would be, you know, that that, that lack of information makes perfect sense if we recognize that the deity of Jesus Christ was experiencing life as a human. Or how about the death of Jesus? Did the humanity and the deity of Jesus both die on the cross? If so, then we also have a God who can die. Now, that doesn't make sense. How could you have a God who, who is the essence and the creator of life? How can that God die? No, it was the humanity of Jesus that died on the cross, not the deity. Therefore, we must conclude you know, that, that Jesus has two distinct natures, both being crucially and, and essentially important because as God, he can provide us with his grace, but as man, he can offer himself a sacrifice on our behalf. And in light of these things, we should ask then, was Mary the mother of God? Does the term Theotokos really make biblical sense? Was Mary the mother of God? The answer is no. God doesn't need a mother. Mary was the mother of the humanity of Jesus Christ. Mary is the mother of Jesus' human nature and not the mother of his everlasting deity. And that, that being the case, the title mother of God is incorrectly applied to Mary, by the leaders of the Roman Catholic Church. What this also means is that there is no biblical basis for believing that we should pray to Mary. To add it all up, let's go back through our outline again. The Roman Catholic dogma of Mary's Immaculate Conception is unbiblical because, according to Mary herself, she was a sinner in need of a Savior. Not only that, but the Roman Catholic dogma of Mary's perpetual virginity is also unbiblical because Mary went on to have four sons with her husband Joseph, not to mention her daughters, which uh, we have no knowledge of how many there were. But what we do know is that Mary went on to have a very natural relationship with Joseph, and together they bore sons and daughters. So her perpetual virginity is completely unbiblical. Finally, the Roman Catholic dogma that presents Mary as the mother of, of God is also unbiblical because as a human, Mary can only be the mother of Jesus' finite human nature and not the mother of his deity. Therefore, Mary is the mother of Jesus' humanity, while the deity of Jesus Christ is the preeminent one who has always existed. In light of these biblical truths, we can clearly see here that the Roman Catholic Mary is a very different Mary than the one presented in the Bible. And based on all of this, we should conclude our study by asking, well, is there reason to believe that prayers offered to Mary will be approved because of her position as Jesus' mother? 
Is there some reason for us to think that, you know, praying prayers to Mary, you know, will somehow get the green light from Jesus quicker, you know, or, or more easily? In order to answer this question, I'd like you to turn to Matthew chapter 12. And as you're making your way there to Matthew 12, I want to point out that the belief that Jesus would never deny a request from his mother is something that has been presented by the Roman Catholic Church. I've seen it uh, in print. You know, I've seen it you know, argued by Catholic apologists and, and, and priests. The idea that, you know, well, you know, if, you, if, you go, if you go to Mary, then you're more likely to get help from Jesus. Is there a reason to believe this? And with this question in mind, if you would look with me here at Matthew chapter 12, I want to begin reading at verse 46. Here Matthew writes, While he was still talking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and brothers stood outside speaking, uh, seeking to speak with him. Then one said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. But he answered and said to the one who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand toward his disciples and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Here in these verses, we not only find Jesus denying a request from his mother, but he also turns around and uh, you know, suggests that you know, anyone who is walking according to the will of God the Father are now his brothers and sisters and mothers. And, 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 and in other words, whoever does the will of, of God the Father has become part of the family of Jesus Christ. Without debate, Mary was blessed among women. So listen, I'm not up here to demote Mary. And I don't think any Christian ought to spend any time demoting Mary. At the same time, we should not exalt her either to a level that the Bible won't allow for. The Lord honored Mary greatly by calling her to become the mother of our Savior's humanity. And yet he turns around and says, listen, anybody who's doing, doing the will of God the Father is on the same level in the sense that trusting in Jesus Christ allows us to become part of the adopted family of God and According to him, then that makes us his brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and so on and so forth. From this, I must insist that Mary is not a mediator. She is not an advocate for us. She, she is not the one that we go to for help so that she might then go and convince Jesus to do whatever we're asking for. We don't need another advocate. We don't need the priests of the Catholic Church to advocate for us. We don't need to go confess our sins to them. We don't need their distribution of the sacraments. And we don't need Mary to act as an advocate for us because we have the most gracious advocate. And who is it? Jesus Christ. This is what... Paul was writing in 1 Timothy chapter 2 where he assures us that there is one God and one mediator. Not two, but one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Listen, if you want to pray to somebody, pray to the Savior of sinners, Jesus Christ, because he alone 
is the advocate. He alone is the mediator between a holy God and sinful people. Should we pray to Mary? Should we prayerfully invoke heavenly help from the mother of our Savior's humanity? Absolutely not. I I think that Mary would cringe at the idea that anybody would pray to her. And Listen, I get it. There are Roman Catholics who will insist that, well, it's, just, it's like asking your friend to pray for you. I, okay. I mean, I, I get the argument. But, like, if I were to ask Jeremy to pray for me, I wouldn't say, oh, hail Jeremy, full of grace. And <laughs> Like, that's not, that, that's not how I would approach anybody to ask for prayer. Hail Queen Jeremy, full of grace and truth, and that sort of thing. Like, like I wouldn't do that. Hey, buddy, can you pray for me? Yeah, that, that's the way I'd approach it. When we consider, you know, the, the prayers offered in the rosary, oh, hail Mary, Queen of Heaven, most gracious advocate. It's like, mm, that's not asking a buddy to pray for you. That is worshiping a different Mary who is not revealed in the scriptures. And with that, whether it be the hallow app or a leader in the Catholic church who would encourage the prayers of the rosary, I would say they're encouraging you to pray to someone other than Mary. And I believe that Mary would cringe to to think that you would pray to her in that way. We should pray according to the instructions that Jesus presented when he taught his disciples to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. This is the way Jesus taught us to pray. And knowing that our heavenly father hears us without a third advocate or a fourth advocate, or we don't need all these advocates. We have a mediator. He is our advocate. And through him, we pray. We pray to the father by the power of the Holy Spirit and in the name of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is the only mediator that we need. Should we pray to Mary? Nah. Let's pray to the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.